After seeing people struggle to get snowboard boots tight enough with traditional lacing systems, BOA founder Gary Hammerslag thought he could make a better mousetrap. He used his medical device experience to fashion a mechanical wire and reel closure system that's now found on all manner of sports footwear. Two things are important here. First, consumers weren't asking for something better. Second, Gary didn't devise a better lacing system. Instead, he came up with something entirely new, different, and better. He saw a problem no one else did, and that spells opportunity. The challenge then wasn't just to create a solution, but also how to bring it to market. And therein lies some of the key lessons in this episode. Gary talks about working with OEM partners, preserving capital, and marketing to two different audiences. Here we go. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Gary, you started BOA, which nowadays has its hands in a lot of different sports and, and equipment industries and channels by creating something that is kind of quicker and easier to use than laces. And depending on the application, I guess there's there's various advantages to it over using a traditional lacing system or Velcro straps. Um, maybe you could give us a quick rundown of all the different industries that you guys supply and then we'll start talking about how you got started. Okay, good. Um, I'll tell you the biggest ones to start with. Uh, snowboard is a, is a big market for us, and it was our first one. Cycling is very big. Uh, we do a lot in cycling. Uh, work boots, uh, primarily in Europe. We have a, a lot of business in, in work boots for kind of some different reasons. We work with Red Wing here in the U.S. also, but most of our customers are, are in Europe. Golf shoes is another one of our bigger markets. Um, worldwide, we're really popular in uh, Asia, in particular Japan and, and Korea. We also have a medical group, which is not uh, a real big part of our business, but it's meaningful. And we work with some different partners to make braces and uh, a different type of cast and different uh, types of products that need closure. Everything we do is around... Uh, the lacing system for, for closure. So that's an interesting one also. Plus for a lot of other markets like fishing boots and uh, almost anywhere there's a shoe, we add value. It just depends where we are and the evolution of that. We're starting to get into athletic more, which of course could be an important market for us. Yeah, really guys, anywhere there's shoes. Yeah, you guys have a little bit of running shoe clients and um, I think like even hiking, right? Yeah, we do. Um, we've been in, we call it outdoor, which is a combination of hiking and low top shoes. We've been in that market for a long time. And a lot of our business is in Korea. Uh, 
lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that in the beginning. But there's a, a, a hiking is a national pastime in Korea. They got a lot of beautiful mountains, um, and it's something people do there a lot. So it's a big market. It's one of Gore-Tex's bigger markets. And there's a lot of brands that operate just in Korea that make really nice shoes, and we become really popular there. Cool. So we have a lot of business in Korean outdoor and. We're starting to do better and better with the uh, with uh, European outdoor companies, and we expect that to be a growing market as we get our solutions to work really well. So, what are some of the major brands that you know everybody would recognize that you guys supply to? Well, in in snowboard, I'll start with that one. We supply most of the major brands, most of the ones you would have would have heard with. The Vans and K two are our first customers there. But now we uh, supply reels to Solomon, uh, to Burton, uh, Flow is another large customer. Most of the major players. We have a uh, kind of a marketing strategy where we work with what we call premium brands. Uh, and we define that as generally more expensive product, but more specifically companies that are not uh, in the business just for lower costs. I mean, there's a market for that and there's a need for that and it's fine, but we try to work with people that uh, are more into the sport and trying to build great products. Um, so that's our general philosophy. And going back to some brands, golf, uh, we work with FootJoy, uh, we work with Adidas. Uh, running, which is new, we're working with Asics, Asics and New Balance, Under Armour. Um, a lot of the work we you haven't heard of because most of them are in Europe, uh, but we do work with Red Wing here and have for quite a few years. They're a great company, make great shoes. Um, so there's some examples. We work yeah. with a lot of good brands. And in cycling, we also work with most of the majors, uh, Specialized, Giro, um, a lot of the small high-end brands in Italy like, uh, like Garnet, for example. Um, so we work with most of the majors in, in uh, cycling. Majors are what we call premium brands. Right. And so for somebody who's not familiar with your product, it's essentially uses what looks like fishing line. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you explain why it's different and we can talk some of the development and tech details. But it basically, you, you twist it to tighten and pop it open to release. Depending on the model, you have different models that operate in with their own little nuances. But... That's what it is. So you can, you know, tighten your shoe and make micro adjustments on some models, you know, to kind of get the fit dialed. What was the, well, add anything you want to that and then tell me, like, why, how did you come up with the idea? Why did you start this? The, um, I'll start with why I started and lead into what the product does and some of the nuances of it. Um, I started the business in the uh, late 90s. 98 is when I really got after it um, and went after it full time. And before that, I'd been in other businesses, medical device business that I started, a few other medical device businesses before that. So I've been around new products and bringing them to market for a long time. And in the, in the mid-90s, I moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado from California, where I'd lived for a long time. And I uh, had a medical device business there, which we had sold. So when I got here, I was actively looking for a new business. Uh, I needed something else to do and uh, another source of income. And this is a small town. And 
not uh, a whole lot of jobs. So I was actively looking for a new product to work on. And uh, I was working on a cardiac product, cardiac catheter, because that was my previous business. And I had contacts and some knowledge of that business, uh, including how to manipulate fine wires in different situations. But then I started to snowboard. Uh, I was skiing before that. And my kids started to snowboard. And at the same time, they started to play ice hockey. Because remember, we had moved from Southern California. And my kids were 8 and 10 at the time. And I could just see shoelaces in these heavier boots, like snowboard boots and hockey skates, just were a really ineffective solution. Um, for young kids, it was hard to get the skates tight enough. For people that had the strength, and for, for, for women, it was hard, and women, it was hard for snowboard boots also. Um, but even if strength wasn't an issue, it took a long time, and it was really hard to get the tightness where you wanted it. And uh, the, the knot would come untied. It just seemed to be a really poor solution. I kind of hated it. Um, like I said, I was working with wires in my previous medical device business. And uh, one of the things we were trying to solve is transmitting forces over long distances because we had a wire that went into the heart, actually. And uh, so the idea came kind of simply to me that the way that shoelaces work, and that, by the way, is a good way to solve any kind of problem. If you see something that is just not working correctly is to really figure out how it works and how it was designed or maybe evolved and not specifically designed. But as I looked at shoelaces, um, let's say snowboard boots or, or hockey skates, you know, you start down by the toe and you pull the lace as tight as you think you want it, tighter than you want it. And when you let go, some of it, it loosens up a little bit. There's some friction intentionally built into the laces so you don't lose all the tension. Then you go up to the next island and pull it a little bit tighter than you want it, let go, and you work your way up to the top of the boot or skate. And then you tie the knot and hope everything is where you want it. And if it's not, then you got to start all over again. So usually people live with an imperfect fit because it's just not exactly what they want. And you watch, especially pro-level um, um, hockey, uh, you know, hockey players, they'll spend a long time tying up their boots to get it just right and often tape it so it doesn't come untied. So I figured the, the, the basic idea was if you had low friction in the, in the system instead of high friction that was variable, then you could just pull the lace at the top and get it right to the tension that you wanted. And that was the crux of the idea. Um, and it's easy to get low friction if you use not a textile uh, lace, but something thinner and smaller. And I knew from my experience that you can get really flexible metal cables. And most of our laces now are stainless steel cables. It's real high grade stranded stainless steel. Most of the laces have uh, 49 individual strands stranded together for flexibility and strength. So it's really kind of a high tech, high tech wire. And you know, the lace guides, which I also designed to go down the side of the skate or the snowboard boots are also low friction. So you could essentially pull that cable and tighten up the whole, the whole boot. Now you didn't really have leverage to do it. And of course you can't tie a knot with a cable. So the reel came next. 
And uh, by using a reel, you can get as much leverage as you want with gearing. And of course, with a ratchet, you can just tighten the boot until it's the right tightness. So that just seems like a much, much better solution. And I got ahead of myself getting into how I prototyped and the like. But well, actually, I was going to be my, I was going to ask you about that. Like, how did you start hacking your system onto existing boots, and how did you piece this thing together? Well, once in the beginning, I was doing it as kind of a hobby. Um, I didn't really think of it as a business because I kind of liked this product I was working on for um, in the medical world, this coronary catheter. And I knew that world and I uh, had contacts and had just done a pretty successful business in it. So that was where I was going to go. I was, you know, a snowboarder and all this other stuff just for fun for myself. But I was really intrigued and I had time. And uh, I knew where to get wires. So I called some of my wire suppliers I had worked with and told them roughly what I was working for, uh, looking for and just estimated it size, strength, the wire that I thought I'd need to start. And I had a guy I was working with in San Diego for a long time that was just really good at prototyping almost anything that um, that I wanted. He had a machine shop and a little molding facility in his garage, literally. And I, I told him the idea and uh, said, hey, listen, let's figure out a reel. I need a reel, but it can be big. It doesn't matter. Um, so he did make a reel for me, which was Oh, probably as big as a package of cigarettes with a big dial on it. And uh, I just wanted to test it to see if it worked on, on my own snowboard boots. And um, so I kind of scabbed that reel on to, to a pair of boots. And I found a guy here in Steamboat Springs that made custom cowboy boots. So he had uh, sewing machines and knew how to work with heavier boots like that. And I had him... So on, the first ones had tubes, actually, really hard. It was actually a medical device tube also that was really hard and slippery. <clears throat> so I could form the shape of the guides. It was real Frankenstein. And um, took it up in the mountain, and it kind of worked okay. And so I just continued refining it, uh, mainly the lace guides, the clunky reel I left on. Mainly, I uh, refined the lace guides, how to uh, how many I needed to have. At first, I did it kind of like shoelaces, where there was uh, seven of them. But there was still too much friction. I didn't get good tightness. And it eventually evolved into much longer lace guides, which we still have in uh, most of our systems. Um, the idea being having nice, even closure, uh, low friction, um, that was mainly it. Um, but I spent a, that winter just kind of messing around. I had one boot with shoelaces and one boot with this Frankenstein contraption. And by the end of the winter, I felt like, boy, this really is better. It really works better in all ways. So that's how I got to the point where I thought uh, this product could be something. But it was still a hobby at that point. But... Um, that's how I scabbed it together. It's just finding the right people to help me. Uh, I'm not an engineer by training, but been working around product development for a long time and uh, know enough to be dangerous and uh, enough to know to work with the right people that can do the detail design with me. And I just um, work with them, tell them what I want. So how did you progress from there? Like, did you find some friends willing to 
let you customize their boots or do you have to start buying boots in their sizes? Like, So what I did next is, is, is what I really did next. Cause I, I told you I was actively looking for a business. So even though I was messing around, it was, uh, yeah, I was seriously looking for a business. And at this point I was starting to think that this might be something I'll do because I had to find something to do. I was also going to, uh, the money that I'd made from the previous business. And, uh, so I had to pick something pretty soon. So I was pretty serious. So the next thing I did is sort out the business model to see if I can make money on this thing. Um, so if you give me a moment, I'll go there. Then I'll come back to the next step, which was signing up friends and how I did it. But before I went that, before I went that far, want to see okay this product seems good but there's a lot of good products that are hard to bring to market or difficult to build a business model around that can be successful and i've been in quite a few unsuccessful businesses in the past and uh, it sounds like you have also reading a little bit about you and they're not very much fun no they're not <laughs> you learn you a learn lot, lot. <laughs> And I learned a lot, but I figured at this point I was in my mid forties, I guess. And, and I wanted to have some success rather than more lessons, you know? Right. So I spent a lot of time. Okay. So this is a great product. What am I going to do with it? And, uh, my first thinking was this thing is so unique that, uh, and also snowboarding, uh, which was my first focus was really growing at the time. It was a growing business. A lot of new companies trying to get into it. And uh, I figured, boy, if I made snowboard boots um, that work this well, I could get on the shelf because this is unique and someone could see it's unique just walking into the room. I don't have to wave my arms and do, you know, a lot of marketing material and convince someone why it's better. They can see right away. It's at least different and they'll try it on. So I figured, okay, I, I started to build a set of financial projections for starting a snowboard boot company. And I talked to people in, in the business. So it wasn't that hard to find people living here in a ski town. And I knew some other people that were in the ski business. And uh, it's a hard business. Uh, I, I just couldn't get it to make sense. Um, but, but at this point, you were talking about creating your own boot in boot brand, not just creating a dial, right? Exactly, exactly. I was looking for a way to take this idea into a business and that was the first logical next step for me was to do that what was so hard about uh, that the uh well one i was starting to learn that uh, boots are not that easy to make you know so there's a lot of learning curve in making a good boot um there's more and more factories particularly in asia that make them but it's difficult to make a good boot and all i was bringing to the table really was an improvement in the closure system but the way that business model works, too, is um, you design snowboard boots. And this is true for, you know, all products in the winter sports industry and, and a lot of other industries, too, including cycling. And, and uh, cycling is a little bit easier because it's a, a year-round business. But a seasonal business like snowboard is you design these boots, uh, you build some samples, you start to sell them into dealers in late fall, early winter, through the year. You usually get in orders, orders March, April, May. Then you got to build the boots, 
and you got capital once you start building the boots, right? You got to pay your factory, especially a young company. You got to pay them often at least some up front and the rest by letter of credit and then ship them to the dealers in the fall and the winter. And then hope and, you get paid. <laughs> and hope you get paid. <laughs> and in the best of circumstances, the terms are, you know, 90 days. And if it doesn't snow, they often pay later. So you have a lot of capital tied up for a long time, you know, a year. And uh, maybe a little bit less than a year, but a long time. And some of the money just don't get back. So it, it took a lot of capital. Plus, to get those sales, you got to find and hire sales reps who already have their own lines, right? Uh, and you have just a boot. You don't have boots and bindings and, uh, and snowboards, you know. You're just a one-product company. And, uh, and that's just if you're doing it in the U.S. So it was... It was difficult. When I put all these numbers together, it took a lot of capital, uh, took a lot of time to, also a lot of capital before you even knew if it was going to sell through okay. You know, you had to find the reps to get any kind of momentum. And uh, it just, it just, I just couldn't make it add up, you know, because the other part of it too is I had some money, but I was going to need investors to really move forward. And uh, I, I just couldn't build a plan that I could ask someone for money for. It just looks like you would need too much and wait too long and have uncertainty for too long a period of time. So did, did you, so, when you came to that conclusion, did you think about giving up or just how did you pivot to creating just the real? I pivoted pretty early on, you know, when I was looking at these numbers and talking to people and, and realizing, hey, what am I bringing to the table? And it is really just the closure system. Uh, and then I started thinking to bicycle components. That's where my mind went first. Uh, Shimano and SRAM, which was so much smaller at the time. But um, that seems to make sense. Just sell the components. And one, I'm likely to not have to wait so long for... Uh, getting paid because I'll be selling to a company Two, if I can tap into their distribution network, they have a set of reps, uh, they have a marketing department and they have distribution worldwide already. And if I work with multiple brands, again, like bicycle component companies do, then I can get enough volume because again, we sell these components for like, like uh, for a pair of shoes or boots, our components will cost anywhere from four bucks up to oh, all the way up to 18 bucks for a set of snowboard components that have two sets of reels and the like, but relatively small compared to a pair of boots. But if I went to several different brands, I could get, you know, worldwide distribution um, pretty quickly as long as I could do that business model. And even though I didn't get as much revenue per pair, you know, it add up. And that really started to make sense. And um, as a matter of fact, I, and I was still thinking too, what else do I have to put together as far as manufacturing, financing and the like. And uh, so I explored that. I actually talked to the Day Brothers at SRAM. I just called them out of the blue. I didn't know them. And said, do you mind if I just pick your brain to hear about your business? And, and uh, so I went to see those guys, really great guys. And I'm still in touch with them from time to time. And, and, and they confirmed that their business model worked well, in cycling anyway. And um, that helped me feel good about it. 
And then I went back and talked to not any snowboard boot companies, but people in the ski business and people more on the periphery of uh, the snowboard brands. I mean, real quick, and, I want to ask about the, the discussions with SRAM. So did you, because SRAM doesn't make shoes or really anything I can think of that would use your equipment. Um, were you talking to them because they were a component manufacturer selling their components to a you know, a bigger thing, you know, their components go on a bike where your components go on a shoe. Like, why did you talk to them? That's exactly right. Not as a customer, because you're right. They were not a potential customer. Uh, just to talk business, just to have someone that had a similar business model to hear how the business model worked for them. You know, I wasn't going to be a competitor. So I, I figured they would, you know, if they were interested in chatting and people usually like to talk about their business, if it's a, a non-competitor or someone that's just interesting in starting a business. So I just want to brainstorm with them with the idea. Cause I didn't know anything about that model. You know, I came from the medical device business, uh, completely different types of distribution. So that was all. Yeah. At and, that um, time in the, the bike industry or even the ski industry, was there any precedent for, um, boots or shoes or any kind of clothing, you know, apparel piece using a third party component on it? Or was this a new idea for that particular segment? The, in many industries, it was not done. Uh, but Gore-Tex uh, has been selling, you know, their membranes to footwear companies for a long time, primarily in the outdoor world. And they've been, uh, they're in some other markets also, but most of their business is in outdoor shoes, hiking boots and things like that. But in snowboard, it was unprecedented and cycling. Most markets, it was not. And that's what I heard as I got a little bit deeper is, hey, it may work for cycling, but it's not going to work here. Um, so I heard that, especially when I started to uh, knock on doors with snowboard boot companies, which came quite a while later, you know, a couple of years later. But people I talked to in the industry um, that I just met, I think I went to SIA once, which is the uh, ski show, and just started talking to people uh, who I was introduced to uh, more abstractly. I don't think I even showed them the product because um, it wasn't ready yet. But uh, they said, you know, maybe it works in cycling, but it's not going to work here for a bunch of reasons. But none of the reasons really made sense to me. It really just sounded like this is the way things are done. And people are creatures of habit. We all are, uh, particularly in business, um, particularly in mature businesses that have a way of doing things. And the most experienced people in those businesses are often, this is the way we do it. And the way they do it in this, you know, adjacent business like cycling, it works there, but it's not going to work here. Again, for all these reasons, I don't even remember what the reasons were, but I'm listening going, that didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I think so, you're stuck in your ways, you know? <laughs> how did you overcome that? Um, well, by the time I got to the point of um, going to the brand specifically with a product to sell, I was much, much further along. In other words, I had committed by now to refine the product, find a manufacturer, um, and, and really go for it. 
And so by the time I approached snowboard boot companies, I had something that I thought was pretty compelling anyway. Then you and I went in to, cycling, right? No, no, not yet. Oh, okay. Cycling, our first year of sales for snowboard boots was 2001. And for cycling, it was 2005, I think. So cycling why, was later. Yeah, why do you think that took so long? Because it, it sounds, uh, the way I'm hearing your story is it's, uh, you, you kind of went from the idea of creating a snowboard boot to just creating the retention system and started talking to cycling brands pretty early on. Why did it take so much longer to get break into that market with a product? Because it was a completely different product. Um, the reel and the, the lace cable that we designed for snowboard boots was, was bigger. It had a gear system inside. Uh, those boots are much heavier uh, and they take much more force not heavier in weight. I mean, they're just stiffers, a better description. They take much more force to close. So um, the first product was a geared system. Um, the cable was much stronger and less flexible than what we use in cycling shoes. Uh, completely different product. The concept is the same, but we had to start from scratch to design a whole new reel, a new cable. And new lace guides; those were easier. But, but it was mainly the real, mainly the real. Really, was a, was a whole new engineering and design project, uh, new tooling. So I just didn't want to bite that off until we had a little bit of headway in snowboard boots, uh, partially for financial reasons, partially for staying focused. Uh, that was why. So you you basically were still when you went to the ski company, then and you found somebody to use it on their boots. You were still approaching them with you know, like a, a sample good without, um, in the field kind of, that hadn't really been proven in the field in mass production. Right. Right. What I did is a, uh, as a next step. And this, this goes back to your earlier question of, uh, what did I do next after I had the Frankenstein on my one snowboard boot? Uh, first I put this business model together in my mind and on paper that, Hey, I think this can work. So, I'm going to go for it. And at that time I dropped the cardiac catheter, you know, I wasn't sure which product was going to be better, but I had to focus on one or the other. And this one sounded much more fun also, you know, it's just, just, it just, it just sounded fun uh, to switch industries also is a, is, is a neat thing to do because you bring lessons uh, that other people don't have. You bring an open mind and uh, probably a lot less so regulation too, huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was that also, but that wasn't really that wasn't really the reason. That that didn't bother me that much. You know, that was just another obstacle to doing business in medical devices. Um, it was mainly the people. I just thought of the ideas of going to trade shows for, you know, snowboarding and cycling, and and uh, the people I'd meet. I go, it just sounded fun and exciting, and I love the idea of, you know, testing my own products you know, on a ski mountain or on my bike. I mean, everything just sounded more fun than uh, medical devices, which can be fun in different ways, but you don't really ever get to use your own product. You know, you're relying upon your collaborations with the physicians and you which hope, is fun you in hope you way, don't have to use your own product. We <laughs> hope you don't have to. <laughs> we hope you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I made the decision and then the next step 
was I needed to make some reels that uh, weren't quite so Frankenstein to test them more thoroughly because I was pretty convinced that any kind of product business you go into is it's got to be really good. It, it's really hard to introduce something that's almost there. Um, and I knew there was a lot to do to make sure it was strong enough to be sure the user interface was easy and foolproof. And it really had to be better than shoelaces and people weren't complaining about shoelaces. You know, it wasn't, I used to use the analogy. It's not a cure for cancer. You know, this is not an obvious need that people are looking for a solution to uh, shoelaces. You know, people would complain about it on snowboards a little bit, but not that much. It was, um, you know, no one whined about it, right? No one was looking for another solution. So to be successful, I knew it had to be really, really good in, in all those ways, reliable, uh, look decent, uh, not be a Frankenstein. A good, easy user interface could never break. So I spent another year, really, of uh, redesigning the reel into something closer in size, see if I could do it. And I worked with the same guy in San Diego. And we came up with a design that we could make. I think I made 50 reels or so. And they cost like a hundred bucks each. They were, uh, they were prototypes of low volume production, no real molds or anything. We just designed them in such a way that we could produce them in that, in that quantity, even if they, even though they cost a hundred bucks each. And, um, went to a guy in town here in Steamboat Springs at a snowboard shop and, uh, I said, listen, I, I told him what I was doing. And uh, I said, one, I'm going to need to buy like, you know, a dozen pairs of snowboard boots, which of course got his attention, you know? Right. And, uh, but, <laughs> but I said, also, I need your help finding some people to help me test it. Cause I'm not exactly the target audience anymore. I was in my mid forties and I'd only been snowboarding a couple of years. And I was looking for someone who was much more skilled and experienced, uh, harder on their equipment, and also that was in the demographic in their twenties is really most of the business. So he hooked me up with, um, some of his friends, some of his employees to test the boots for me. One of the guys coincidentally, uh, works for us now. One of the employees, uh, who was the first tester, you know, four or five years later, we needed, needed someone and we hired him and he's still, he's still with us. But, so then I found someone else besides the snowboard boot guy, I'm sorry, the uh, cowboy boot guy to help me tear apart these boots and install our system, which wasn't easy. So there was another guy in town that made backpacks and, and uh, specialty like fanny pack belts for ski patrol and just different sewing projects, custom things. And we built, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe a dozen pairs of snowboard boots, a couple of different pairs for me and for all these young guys. And we spent the winter testing them with, with good results. It gave me really good uh, confidence. Um, so I felt pretty, felt pretty good about that, but this was not a manufacturable product, but we messed with different user interfaces, which is really important that um, it be, easy to use. It does what you want it to do. It gives you the adjustment that you want. Any kind of product or user interface is so important um, that you get it right. 
So I messed with that that year also, tried different things and came up with the interface, which is in, oh gosh, 90% of our products now is exactly the same user interface. And uh, then I started looking for two things. One, I, I looked for another type of designer that could design the product for high volume manufacturing. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. How hard was it to to take the design from small scale to mass production? Yeah, it's uh, I had to redesign the reel again, which I knew, you know. Uh, I think by the time I went to this next reel, I was on my seventh or eighth reel design. But they were all steps starting from the Frankenstein to something slightly less Frankenstein to something that wasn't a commercial product, but proved to me I could make it small enough and test it with those 50 reels as well as mess with the user interface too. You know, we changed a little bit on that, but I knew the next step was to something that we could produce for low enough cost, you know, cause we're adding costs to this. Shoelaces are very inexpensive. So in all of our markets, we're, we're um, providing a solution to a problem that a lot of people don't think they have. People don't complain about shoelaces, right? So we can, only add so much to the cost of goods to uh, before they say, "Hey, maybe this is great, but you know, I'm not going to spend the money." Yeah, and what's so, the math? Uh, like, I talked to my friends at Camelback, and they're like, "Okay, well, if if it costs us fifty cents to add this feature, it adds like five dollars at retail." So it's crazy how those numbers multiply. From it's crazy how they multiply, and depending upon where you are in the supply chain. We use a number that's more four to five times, depending upon the, the business. You know, sometimes it's even only three times, but that's unusual markets. Uh, in the larger foot, well, footwear world, including cycling shoes and snowboard boots, it's more four to five times. So if our system costs five bucks, and we have to assume it's going to add 20 bucks, 25 bucks to retail. All right, so which is a huge jump. That's a challenge. It's a huge jump. It's a huge jump, and it continues to be, you know, a challenge for us because we're adding real, we're adding real cost, and you know, you're taking out some costs also, uh, and you're, uh, you know, sometimes other materials are replaced uh, instead, so it doesn't always add that much. It depends on a lot of other things that uh, trade offs that are made in the in the design, but it's meaningful, however you do it. So at this next stage I, I i wanted something that was manufacturable that could be super super reliable uh, i wanted low labor content because I, I wanted to produce in the u.s because that's where i lived uh, i did not want to start my own factory even though i've done that in the past with specialty factories for like those um coronary guide wires i made um, you know there what we were bringing to the table is manufacturing techniques but our products are you know injection molding um, different metal parts, fewer and fewer all the time, but but then there was more metal parts, and uh, this is, was known art. So I wanted to use a contract manufacturer. Um, so anyway, I found this uh, just knocking on doors and going through my contacts. I found a real small engineering firm in Boston who used to work for Polaroid, and Polaroid products uh, pretty inexpensive. Uh, Polaroid's out of business now. I think they've reincarnated into something else. But they're at the time they were 
shrinking all the time as digital cameras were starting to come out. But but their products before were really nicely designed, uh, had to mechan- be mechanically strong. And, and these guys had skills, I think, that um, that would translate to what I wanted. So I spent another, I don't know how much I spent with those guys, uh, redesigning the reel with everything I'd learned, uh, looking at different gear arrangements, um, all these different detail things. I mean, it was a six or eight month project for sure. Um, and then I found a contract manufacturer, could not find one in the US. Uh, just, it's not a business here. Um, I looked all over the country for four months, visited a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of companies that do injection molding and metal stamping and all those different specific uh, um, processes. But I couldn't find someone that would really specialize in developing or delivering a finished product that would do some of the processes, source the components they couldn't make, uh, do the full quality control packaging and everything. I couldn't find it. I ended up going to reluctantly to China which turned out to be one of the best things I ever did for a lot of reasons. One, we found uh, just a great, great uh, contract manufacturer. We still use to this day, you know, 15 years later, but also all the footwear factories are in Asia. So we're not shipping our reels across the ocean, which uh, would have been a mistake. I mean, it would have added so much to uh, to logistics. We had to be in Asia to manufacture. I just didn't realize it at the time. So I got lucky, which I'll take luck any time if you can get it, you know. Uh, we just happened to locate our factory in, the, in a really good spot in southern China. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of a long way getting back to your question is once I was starting to tool up with these production design reels and I was already committed. Uh, that's when I started looking seriously for um, customers, snowboard boot customers. Right. And um, yeah, I'm curious how you got them because they've, they've got to take your design and then integrate it into their design, which means, you know, you're, yeah. when you're introducing it, you're at least one, if not maybe two product cycles later before it's actually a finished good available for sale. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, that was another thing I didn't realize is how long that product cycle was, really. So what I did is, and my first two customers were was Vans and K2. And I approached them both more or less the same time. And they were mid-tier players. They weren't the biggest. They weren't, but they were, you know, they made, they made good boots and air players. And I had introductions to both of those companies is how I ended up going there. And what I did is I talked to the folks on the phone, the product managers, and uh, said, listen, what size is your boot, is your foot? And uh, I'm going to make a snowboard boot uh, prototype that fits you. So you guys can try it on because you got to try it on for it to work, for you to realize what it is. And they said, okay. And they may have sent me a pair of boots. I hope so. <laughs> I don't remember anymore <laughs> whether I went out and bought them or they sent them to me. But but either way, before I went to see them, I prototyped up a boot in their size. Had them try it on. And, uh, but by now, I, I had the whole business model figured out. I had my pricing figured out. Uh, warranty. Uh, the installation was designed into the reel so it could be installed easily. 
how you attach the lace. I made the laces replaceable because they might break, you know? I didn't think they would, but I said, if they break, watch how easy it is to change the lace. Uh, the reel was replaceable. And um, the boots fit really well. So they both bought in. What was the, uh, like, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the design being so, and modular is not the right word, but yeah, like you said, every piece that might possibly break can uh, be replaced because, you know, that outer bezel can get smashed against a rock when you're mountain biking or, you know, a tree when you're skiing or something. So, like, how did you know to do that ahead of time? Like, could you, it's one of those things where I feel like a lot of people might come up with an idea and make it brilliant and then realize after the fact that it's uh it's unserviceable yeah good question i don't know how i knew that i guess <laughs> i've been breaking products for a long time um and i've been in the product business for a long time and i just uh it, and i put myself in the buyer's shoes which is a really important thing when i say buyer i mean the consumer is, is if i'm looking for this and shoelaces are a pain in the butt, but, uh, you know, I don't lose any sleep over it, you know? If I see this, what is it that I would want? And what would I worry about? And, yeah, I'd worry about it breaking. I mean, you look at this steel cable. It's thin, you know? And it's mechanical real. So I would worry about that. And if I couldn't replace it, uh, if, if I could replace it, I would feel much, much better about taking a shot at it. So that's how that's how I figured it out. You know? When you went after, yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's the great way to think about it is, you know, like, okay, if I were going to buy this product with my own money, what what would stop me from buying it? And then try and solve, answer all of those concerns ahead of time. Uh, when you approached Vans and K2, you said they were mid-tier companies. Was that only because you had introductions or was that kind of a strategic move? Because I would think a mid-tier brand would want something unique and special to kind of set them apart against the big boys. Um, both of those things, but you're absolutely right about that. The big boys, which I've learned over the years in most, most industries really, uh, is if you have major market share, you know, uh, if you're in Nike, for example, in athletic, you're just as concerned about protecting that market share as, as gaining more market share because you're already the biggest in the, in the field. And what I've learned is, they, is the leaders tend to be much more conservative. Uh, plus, they're bigger. So mistakes cost more dearly. Um, so we've learned that over and over again. And I'm not sure if it was part of my strategy in the beginning or not, to be honest with you. That was quite a few years ago. But we certainly did learn that in time. Yeah. So as far as, as far as mistakes, you know, like, I mean, Vans and K2, they were taking a pretty big gamble to try something that hadn't been proven out in the field of mass production. How did you convince them that it was a, a smart move, a safe move? Did you have to guarantee it in some way? No, it was just a regular guarantee at the time. And now we have a lifetime guarantee, which we put in for all our products. Uh, but we didn't at the time. Uh, it was probably a year, two-year guarantee. I don't remember. No, it was it was um, a risky move on their part. I'm indebted to those guys, for sure. They took a risk, uh, a big risk. Um, 
and it, there was no way around it. It was risky. I was a one-man company at the time, too. How so how did I you got a little bit lucky? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I found the I found the right people that were willing to take a risk. Yeah, it's amazing how much luck comes into play. But again, if you hadn't put yourself in that position, you never would have had that luck. Um, yeah. How did you work with them to incorporate the design? Because obviously, they have to modify their designs to use your product. So, like, and and still today, everybody does. So, like, what kind of support do you provide to the companies? How closely do you have to work with a shoe manufacturer to get it so that they can use your product? And, and what sort of, I guess, guidelines and standards do you have to make sure that they're doing it right? Yeah, really good question. Uh, and right from the beginning, um, like what I would do is I'd work with um, the developers and designers um, that were in the U.S. But most of the development in most companies happens in Asia. In other words, the design with uh, a lot of shoe companies is uh, is more for the features, the colorways, uh, not the detailed patterns, but more the look of the patterns are done in the U.S. or in Europe. And a lot of the detailed development of shoe is done in Europe. In a, I'm sorry, in uh, in Asia. Not always, but but typically most footwear is still made in, in Asia, you know, and um, at different factories. So we would go, you know, I would go to those factories in China and, and work with them. And that continued to be a deeper and deeper part of what we offer as a company. We're, we're still expanding that uh, uh, service and knowledge Um of how to not just install our components, but to design the footwear around just different mechanics than laces and, and buckles in the case of snowboard boots. It helps to design the shoe a little bit differently. So we put a lot of effort into working with, with our partners in that design. Do you run into issues where once it gets to, you know, it goes from the design stage to the manufacturing where uh, things have gone wrong or, you know, it's not being put together correctly? And if so, like, how do you deal with that when it's not your product? Yeah, no, it's, it can be difficult sometimes. Uh, a lot of that is building the relationship and the credibility up front and uh, um, setting the relationship up front that we're there. We don't charge for uh, helping. You know, we have a, office in China with quite a few people and, and our people in Denver and in our Europe office travel a lot. So we have people on the ground a lot and we work with them right through to the end. So we've never had to use, you know, we've never had to be hard. We've never had to be hardcore. You absolutely can't ship that because they don't want things to fail either. Right. But we uh, have had designs that just weren't working, and we pulled a few models over the years. Not us; it was it was always been us and the brand combined. That say this is either just really not closing well. Uh, we've learned a few things along the way of certain ways you, um, you know, uh, coordinate the laces and the lace guides and how they're put on the shoe. You can set up situations that wears the lace out. So we've learned if few times over the years, oh, you can't do it that way, you know? Uh, but if you build the right relationship with the brand, their factory, uh, so 
oftentimes will have development offices in Asia also. If you build that right relationship and you're there on the ground with them, usually you can overcome things going bad and do your best to make the shoe fit well. Yeah. So you've got a, a fairly small part and you, you're talking about, I, I'm just going to throw a number out there. You can correct me if you want to share actual numbers, but let's say you're selling a, a dial and lace system to vans for four bucks per shoe. It's, you know, inside of that is all of your cost to produce and, and market and support and everything else, which sounds like not very much, especially because you guys have a lifetime guarantee. So, you know, if I'm using it and I break it a couple, three times within the lifespan of that shoe, you know, you're having to send me replacements. And I'm just thinking like just the postage on sending me a couple of dials, you know, it pretty much, I would imagine, crushes all of your profit on that particular sale. Like how, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so how do you, how do you work those numbers? Like how did you figure out what the, you know, warranty rate would be? How did you figure out how to price these things? And, and when you get a new customer, you know, like let's say, you know, or existing customer vans, like how many units do they have to buy for it to make sense for you to work with them? Um, it's a lot of questions, I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. The first question, uh, as far as warranty, is, yeah, as soon as you replace reel, you've lost, you know, whatever you made on that sale, for sure. We have to sell a lot of reels <laughs> to, uh, to make a good business. But um, if these things break very often, uh, our business is not going to grow and people aren't going to like them anyway. You know, they'll go to a, a different, more reliable alternative. So we have such a low failure rate that we can afford to be really aggressive when things do go wrong. And we're really aggressive when things go wrong, meaning, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we support our brand partner as well as we can. We'll often fly there, um, solve the problem. So it's more than just putting in a postage stamp. That part is not that much of an overhead for us. You know, we'll so. We'll, we'll give consumers free reels and laces if they ask for them for, um, if they broke. And that's a relatively small expense because they just don't break that often. And uh, if there is a bigger problem because some mistake was made, we just go after really aggressively and it's a cost of doing business. And it just doesn't happen often enough that it uh, impacts us. I mean, it impacts us, but, it, it, but we have to do it. Right. We're still profitable and still in business, and it gives us great incentive to uh, make better and better products. <laughs> there was, we started the lifetime warranty a long time ago, I bet you 10 years ago. And um, I wanted to do that for two reasons. One, it helps allay the fear to the consumer. You know, uh, if it's a lifetime warranty, it's probably pretty strong, or else these guys would be out of business by now, right? It's probably not going to break. But also to make a statement internally in the company that, uh, hey, folks, we're guaranteeing this for life. It's got to be designed and produced to last that long. It just can't break. So uh, with that type of mindset, you can make things pretty reliable and, and durable. We have a lot of engineers and quality people that fret over this. It's, uh, so that's how we afford to do it. They don't break very often. That's good. So how many units do you need to sell? Like if somebody were starting up a new shoe company and wanted to use your system, like what would be the minimum orders from them for it to make sense for you to work with them? 
we don't really do that. We probably should more often, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't. Um, of course, the bigger we get, the more we're looking for larger markets and larger customers. But uh, our filter, especially in the beginning, was not so much company size, but the products they were putting out and that they were categories where we could add value. Um, some things, not many, but some things, uh, better off leaving to shoelaces or buckles, you know? So as long as we felt we could add value, um, we had some pretty small customers. We, don't, we may not make uh, much money on them, you know? But we don't use that filter. Like I said, maybe we should, maybe we'll start, but uh, we we haven't. Yeah, and you mentioned that you you try and focus on brand partners that are at the upper end. Is that like a marketing, a branding positioning thing for you guys, or is it just because those are the ones that can justify selling an item that may cost twenty or thirty dollars more than a yeah, similar or both? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and it really is both. Okay. Uh, we would, we would be forced into those customers anyway because of that. But the thinking really is, uh, we want our product on well put together shoes with serious companies that are trying to build better shoes because you can put a boa on a shoe and it still doesn't work very well. Still doesn't fit very well if the shoe's not good. And there's a lot of shoe companies that are, are shooting more for price. I don't have a problem with that either. It just doesn't work well for our business model because we're uh, more of a technical company and for our system to work well, it's got to be a pair of shoes that's designed more around our system to work well. And also the branding is more uh, in synergy with our customers then too. Um, If we could be found at Walmart, for example, then... uh, a company like Vans or Specialized or FootJoys is not going to feel that good about that, you know? Yeah. They'd prefer to see our product on more higher-end brands. Yeah. Well, let's, so that just works better for our business, you know? Yeah. So that's a good segue into marketing. So a couple of questions on that front. Um, how to, to both uh, consumer-level marketing and then trade-level marketing, like what are some of the things you guys do to reach those two different customers and then also uh, when somebody like let's just use specialized for an example like so so but specialized uses your system on a shoe are they um advertising the fact that it has boa and using that to uh, sell as a, a selling point for their shoe or are you guys chipping in money to help pay for that advertising because it's also promoting your brand yeah, right. That's a good question. The, the first question, if I understood it correctly, is we do not do any marketing to two brand partners, uh, you know, the vans, the specialized of the world. There's really not that many in the world. You know, I mean, there's thousands, probably tens of thousands of shoot companies, but uh, we find them or they find us, you know, one-on-one. You know, we meet them at trade shows. They find us other ways. So we don't do any advertising looking for customers at all, never never have. We've just found the ones we want to work with, and, and they found us. So th- there's zero uh, marketing sure. for that, okay? Um, 
we have not done a lot of specific consumer advertising because it's very, very expensive given how many businesses that we're in and how many regions of the world we're in. So if we take a, uh, a budget for consumer, uh, we not, have not done as much as we like because we decide, okay, do we go into Korea outdoor? Do we go into cycling in Europe, um, snowboard in the U.S.? We, we cover such a broad geography in different um, um, categories, you know? So we work with our partners a lot. We're starting to spend more and more on consumer. We're going to do a bigger push on that. Uh, frankly, just as we get larger and have more resources, uh, we want to do that. It would help a lot. We've always, a key thing is we support our partners a lot with marketing materials uh, to make it easy for them to describe how BOA works and the benefits that it brings. Because it's a feature that needs description, right? So they, they want to do this. So when I buy a pair of and, shoes uh, with it, it has that little hang tag that explains the BOA, are you guys providing that to them and then they're just tagging it onto their product? Yeah, we provide that. There's an example of how we cooperate in ways. But we'll also just provide artwork and language to help them uh, convey the advantages. And we like it when they use our logo. Uh, it helps us build our brand, but we don't demand it. Um, we just give them the tools to to use our brand and logo uh, because we think it's helpful, you know. And as a market gets more mature, it usually is helpful. We don't demand it of them. Right. Do you guys ever co-op ad buys like that? Uh, you know, like let's say Specialized was taking on the full page for their shoes and then uh... – would you guys chip in to have your logo included? We've done that some, but we don't do it a lot. Um, we're generally still quite a bit smaller than most of our customers, and there's only so much we can there's, we can contribute to really be meaningful for them. Because, again, our sale per shoe is way smaller than their sale per shoe, right? So uh, that type of direct um advertising we we have done some but we usually find there's other ways we can be more meaningful to help them than just uh some dollars in that regard so we've done it but we've usually found better ways that's more useful to them that's a lot of our model is helping them sell the product that that maybe is another way to answer that question of yours uh how do you do that because well some of the things we were just talking about um of uh, providing hang tags, providing a lot of uh, artwork and language, how to describe um, the system. Because no, we cooperate with the brand partners because uh, nobody goes out and buys a ball reel. They buy a Vans boot or a specialized uh, bike shoe or a Adidas golf shoe. Uh, they're buying the shoe with the system. So uh, the, the merchandising, the uh, marketing on the brand level, um, they do most of the communicating. So we can help best by helping them communicate the features best and giving them materials to do it. And things like hang tags. Uh, we've done some shelf talker things, some retail, um, you know, some, some uh, retail aids. So that's where we, that's where we uh, help market the product with them. Okay. So like I, ask, I said, we, we look to do more consumer, but um, yeah, I would, we could always do more. I want to ask you about competitions because, like, I've got a pair of Northwave cycling shoes sitting here, and they have their own 
dial retention system. Do you guys have patents on your design and your technology? And, and how do you deal with similar systems on the market? The, uh, well, yeah, we got buckets of patents. We spent a lot of money on patents. Uh, and we've enforced them a few times. But we don't really look at competition the way a lot of other uh, businesses do. You know, uh, we, we know everyone that makes a reel and we've taken apart the reels and we know how we're um, different. Uh, and if there's infringements, you know, we'll address that on a, on a legal level, different ways. But mainly what we're looking at is our consumers. It's going back to what I told you, what they need more than what our competition is providing. We really try to... Uh, not be reacting to competition, but reacting to what consumers want. We say that over and over again internally, that let's not get too carried away with um, watching what all our competition does, like a lot of companies do. Now, we're in a little bit of a different situation because we're far and away the leader in our field. So uh, it's much easier for us to not pay attention to uh, uh, competition in that way than um, uh, than most businesses that have four or five people that have uh, competing products and you're competing neck to neck for shelf space. Yeah. Well, I don't know uh, we if have anybody a, in the cycling space that's, you know, like uh, the Northwave one, for instance, I'm pretty sure that's their dial technology. I mean, they're not licensing that to other shoemakers. Um, and so I can't speak to that in any other industries, but... Like for that example, like what is, do you know why, like why would a brand develop their own as opposed to just taking your system that's proven and get all of that development support for it? How do you guys? Well, not many have, because I, I think in most cases it doesn't make sense. You know, I know, I know the folks at Northway pretty well and they decided to go that route, but uh, it is, um, it's expensive. So, We've had very few customers do that just for the reasons that you that you said. We're constantly improving our system. We offer a lot of support. Uh, making close tolerance mechanical reels and the laces that we use is a whole different type of expertise than making footwear. Footwear is very difficult to make, uh, but these mechanical things are very difficult to make too. So it doesn't make sense for most footwear companies to do it. So we've had very few of that. We've had a couple um, companies make similar real SARS, but they have not done real well. They're more of, uh, you know, I'll call them knockoff brands, you know, uh, or knockoff uh, products. They tend to try to copy ours and try to get around our patents. And we've had a few patent disputes, but uh, there's a few ways to get around uh, around the patents and there's a few products out there in various parts of the world. You know, we have more patents in the U S for example, than a lot of other countries. So in some countries uh, there can be reels that are sold that get around our patents. Um, but they're usually not very good and they're not doing that well because especially the, the larger brands, they just, it's not saving very much money buying those reels and they don't have the lifetime warranty. They don't have the support um, that we offer. 
So do you think, we don't have any real strong competition. Do you think the position that you're in now and, and the 15 years of making it is would prevent somebody else from coming into your space? Or what is preventing anybody from coming in and, and trying to do what you're doing? Um, a lot of things, and, and, and someone could come into our space. Uh, absolutely. We don't feel like uh, no one can ever compete with us. And we build that into the culture of our company of uh, we got to keep getting better and better all the time. We got a lot of good patents, so you have to work around that. But we don't, we don't try to rely upon that. We don't play that up a lot. I wouldn't want to try to design around our patents and come up with a product that's really good. But uh, the main thing we're offering is the high-quality product, the warranty, the, the support. Uh, it's difficult to set all that up. Uh, you'd have to invest a lot of money right now and spend uh, a lot of time. And no one has decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, someday they probably will. Uh, but you so mentioned, far, no one has made that commitment. You mentioned kind of giving customers what they want, you know, the end consumer. Do you guys, how do you guys solicit customer feedback? And, you know, like, what's the process for changing something based on that feedback? Uh, multiple levels. And again, it's something we're expanding on more and more. We do some formal uh, consumer research. Um, we have close relationships with our brand partners to listen to what they're hearing. And another way is a lot of our folks do these sports. And I think that's where we get a lot of valuable feedback. You know, we have a lot of cyclists, a lot of snowboarders, a lot of golfers. And uh, so a lot of it is just internally also. And I think all those are very valid ways of uh, gathering feedback because you get it from different perspectives. Uh, brand, brand And retailers, we, we try to meet retailers whenever we can to hear their viewpoint. And everyone has a different viewpoint. The retailers are trying to sell it directly to consumers. So they hear certain things from the consumers. Um, the brand partners hear things from the retailers. Um, we try to design for the consumer is the main thing. And our engineers see things a little bit differently also because they're looking right down to the mechanical details. So um, we're lucky in that a lot of these guys are athletic and do a lot of sports and women. Um, so we get it from all those three three or four places, uh, cool. all different feedback, and just do our best to to figure what people want. I'm curious, you mentioned that you're in Steamboat Springs, and that's where you um, started the company, but now you have your main office in Denver, Colorado. How do you manage a, a remote office when that remote office is the primary one, and really you're kind of the remote one? <laughs> gotcha, I know. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not involved uh, on an operational level with Bo anymore. But uh, so one is much easier because of that. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm on the board of directors, but I'm not uh, active day to day. However, I was for a long time. And we had an office here with um, anywhere from five to 10 people for most of that period. And also had a very strong team in Denver and a strong leader in Denver, one particular leader in Denver that uh, was president of, of BOA for a long time um, and he was CEO for five years up until just this last year also so he was in Denver 
and he was a strong operational person and uh that helped a lot so that really helped a lot and um for my role being distant sometimes had its advantages uh but usually it was a pain <laughs> usually it was a pain there was a lot of driving going back and forth uh it was a good decision in the end because it's a better place for our headquarters denver but yeah, it was kind of a it was kind of a pain, but um, yeah, I would imagine it'd be hard to work. attract a lot of top talent out to Steamboat because it is very remote. Yeah, there's some successful companies here, uh, outdoor companies and others that do really well. So it can be done. It just adds another level of complexity. Right. But yeah, it can be done. Uh, I decided not to, um, but some other companies have and have done really really well. Right. Uh, so but it's what, more difficult. One of my main questions always to help wrap things up is what are a couple of pieces of advice that you would offer to somebody else that wants to do something similar? And in this case, by that I would mean like you're making a part to go on to a bigger part. Um, Do your homework first to really learn if it really does add value. Um, Because particularly to be a... um, a separate component and particularly if it's a branded component also that they're not otherwise using, you really, really got to add a lot of value. So, um, you got to be sure of that. And that's true in any kind of product though, to be successful, you really need to add value. So, uh, that's one. Be sure you feel pretty confident that your product is really is better and brings value to the consumer in one way or the other. I mean, that can be cost, it can be uh, performance advantages, whatever it is, all those things are important. Yeah, and I think in your um, case, you guys are bringing value to the the brand, you know, the finished product manufacturer as well because of the design support services you offer and give them something unique to sell. Yeah, yeah, I believe so also. That's kind of part of the model. Um, that's kind of part that evolved as we went, as we went forward, but it, it absolutely is. So that's one thing. Um, do your homework as far as the business model. That's important to see if you can end up with something that, uh, can be profitable, you know, so, so you can exist. <laughs> no. uh, you need to make a profit or else you can't, you can't last. Yeah. What, what kind of number would you throw out? Like, so when you were first figuring it out, um, if you figured out your cost was X, let's just say a dollar for easy math. Like how much did you decide you needed to sell that for to, to get the margins that you want? Because especially if you were a one man show starting out, your overhead was fairly low compared to starting to add sales staff and marketing staff and design staff. Like how'd you figure those numbers out starting out? Yeah, it's, it's difficult and it depends. There's so many different kinds of businesses. and products because it depends upon overhead how much support you're offering so there's no magic there's no magic number uh, most product companies with a lot of support and design and engineering and tooling operate in a 30 to 50 percent profit margin range but i've known other people that sell in particular oem products a few that operate on much much less than that but it's very very difficult um these would be Products that just uh, require very little support, uh, cheap manufacturing, cheap meaning not a lot of tooling and stuff involved. So each one is different. 
Yeah. Each one is really different. So I don't think I could I could come up with a number that is, is the magic number. Okay. Well, yeah. I want to clarify that math a little bit because, like, I don't know the answer to this. So let's say, you know, dollar. So when you say 50%, that means they would be selling it for fifty. Yes. Okay. And then so within... Uh, well, no, let me make or, sure or, I got that. Or $2. Let, let me rephrase. A 50% margin would be if your cost was 50 cents, you sold it for a dollar. Okay. So within that 50 cents, and, what what all are you accounting for your cost? Is that everything or just... The, that can't just be product cost. That's the entire cost of getting that thing done with people and everything, right? Insurance. No, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, the way that is typically... Um, calculated and there's generally accepted the accounting principles gap where uh, that, that's pretty closely watched what the gross profit is 50% and it's the cost of the product with some overhead thrown in meaning a, a certain percentage of your uh, quality control people for example or maybe even 100% of them um, the, the cost of uh, your warehouse, for example. So there's a lot of things that debated that goes into that. But what is typical if it would cost you from your factory 40 cents, for example, and it might be another 10 cents of overhead, however you're, you calculate that. Okay. But And then that's your gross margin, 50%. But then on top of that, you're paying all your sales and marketing people, your uh, your managers, your rent for your general office that houses all those people. So if you come back down to uh, 10% profit, that is most companies a healthy company. Some Mm -hmm. do more, some do way, way less than that. Right on. A lot of businesses. And I know you got to run. How do you build adventure into your everyday life now? Oh, I've been spending a lot more time surfing and snowboarding and cycling, and because uh, I have less, uh, I have less job responsibilities now, so that's much easier now. Awesome, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Well, thank you so much okay. for your time. Yeah, it was good to meet you, Tyler. Likewise, talk to you. Okay, bye bye. Gary built a business around solving problems. First, he solved the lacing problem. Then he had to solve the manufacturing problem on two ends, his own, making something small and intricate that could be produced at high volume, and his customers, helping them integrate his solution into their finished goods. His high-level customer service is what makes these collaborations possible. But he wouldn't have had a viable business if the product itself didn't solve a real problem. What I think is most important is that he saw a problem no one else did. People were fine with laces, even though they sucked for certain sports. Look around. What are people so used to using that they just assume it's the only option? What sucky thing are you using only because there's no alternative? Another key point is that Gary simply ignored the naysayers. If people are telling you it can't be done, listen to their reasons. If they're simply saying, well, that's just not the way it's done, or this is just the way we've always done it, then you're probably looking at a market that's ripe for disruption. Speaking of disruption, I have a small favor to ask. Can I disrupt your day for one minute and have you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to The Build Cycle and leave a quick review? And could you tell just one friend about my podcast today? That really helps me grow and get better and better guests for you. Thanks a ton. And thanks for listening. Here's hoping you're ratcheting up your own problem solver. Until next time, keep building.